Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a guy who has lived a truly extraordinary life. And you can say that about a lot of people, but in this case, it's true. And still very much living that extraordinary life. Well, thank you. So welcome, David Fishoff. Thank you. You know, my, my, my inspiration today comes from my, my kids, my children, because uh, they're also gone on to be more successful than me. And it just motivates me to keep, uh, keep working and motivating and, and doing fun things. Fantastic. So we're going to talk a lot about what you've been doing the last couple of decades uh, as the founder and visionary of the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camps, which is, is just an incredible property. But David, I want to start, I want to take us back a little bit. And I want to go back to the Catskills. And I know you worked there as a young man. There were certain parts of American popular culture and entertainment history that are getting lost with the passage of time. And I'd love to take us back to the Catskills, your remembrances of that era, and some of the early, early talent that you work with. Because I'd venture to say there is no one in this country, including anybody at WME or CAA or UTA, that has worked with as many talented artists as you have, David Fishoff. Well, thank you very much. You know, the Catskills was really an interesting place to start um, my career because, first of all, I started as a waiter, and um, the Catskills was really the place where hotels like Grossinger's and the Concord and, and hundreds of hotels up there used to serve three meals a day, um, and then people played tennis and swimming. They went swimming and whatever they wanted to do all day. In the evening, they every hotel had a show, and the show cons consisted of a singer, who would uh, do about a half hour and then a comic who would go on and do an hour and the shows would start at 10 30 at night and why was it so difficult and why did so many great entertainers come from there because we as waiters used to stuff them with so much food and as now lawrence used to say people wanted a side of chicken a side of beef a side you know bring a side of an animal they would eat it these people just ate and ate and ate and it was food orgies and because you know there's not no the, the line they'd go up there was you know, there's nothing better than food is free food. Well, they would think it's free food, but they would eat unlimited. So now they walked into the show at 1030 at night and they, they really hobbled in there and they had to and they had to be entertained. Well, they were afraid to laugh. They were afraid to applaud because they were so stuffed. So the singers, they would do a song and they would get an applause. But then the comic would come out about 11 o'clock at night and he had to get these people to laugh. And they were afraid to laugh because the whole day's food would be coming out. So they had to do all the shtick. And when I say shtick was also the people sat back and they said, entertain me. I dare you to make me laugh because they didn't pay for the ticket. It was all included. Exciting to be here, but real excitement, you know, Florida, there's excitement for you, Florida. The excitement of Florida driving down I-95 and seeing cars with no drivers go by, empty cars. Just little guys like this here with their fingernails on top of the wheel. Becky, are we near Boynton Beach Boulevard yet? Even the malls are different in Florida. Like the malls in Florida, there's no video games in the malls in Florida. Blood pressure machines. People walk around who can't remember their own name, but they know they're 130 over 82. And that's how you call to them. 130 over 82, your digitalis is ready. So these comics like Larry Best, they would come out, I remember, and they said, and his opening line was, I just came from the dentist and uh, he didn't do such a great job. And all of a sudden, a mouthful of chiclets would come out of his mouth. They would do shtick. And comics like Van Harris, Freddie Roman, and, you know, Henny Youngman, they would get up there and they would have to entertain these audiences. These comics went on to go on tour with the Tom Joneses, the Angelbert Humperdinks. They would take these Dick Capri because they, had, they, they knew how to entertain audiences. And um, so that was the, the Catskills. Um, so, so in between, you're serving chicken and steak and God knows what else. And you're watching what goes on at night with the entertainers. Is that when a little light went off with you and said, hey, I like this. I see a pathway forward for me. Because you must have been then late teens, if that. Late teens, yeah, I was late teens. I was 17, 18. I'd go watch the shows. 
I remember going to the Brickman Hotel on Sunday night midnight because, you know, with waiters, we would go the late show and I would sit back and just laugh and laugh and, and said to myself, this is what I want to do. And I, I want to represent these things. I wanted to be a comic, to be honest, but I knew I couldn't do that. I wasn't funny. So I would, I would really got me the inspiration to, to be in show business. And, and then I would see, I'd watch these entertainers work and I'd really see what worked and what didn't work. Um, I tried to be in my brother's band. As you saw in the film, I, I wasn't good enough. And my dad turned to me and he says, don't try to be in your brother's band. Book six bands a night and you can be an agent, be a manager. And that's when I decided the light went off. I was 20 years old and I started uh, working for a booking agent in the Catskills. And what I learned up there was the business model. What was the business model? They would go to artists like Henny Youngman. They would go to Freddie Roman. They would go to all these comics and they would say, hey, we're going to guarantee you 50 shows a, a summer. And it was, it was a booking agent called uh, Charlie Rap Agency. And there was another gentleman named High Einhorn. They were competitors and they would sign these comics up and they would guarantee them X amount of dollars per show. And they would book them either at the Concord Hotel or they would book them at a bungalow colony. They'd book them three shows a night, but they guaranteed them over those Memorial Day to Labor Day, 50, 60 shows. And they paid them the same amount. Then they went and they sold them for whatever they could sell them for. So if they could sell them for 400, they sold them for 400. If they sold for 200 because they had to make it, they had, they had 10 more shows on the guarantee and it was two weeks left to summer, they would sell them that way. I learned this way of business. So then years later, I, I, I was a sports agent, but years later, I decided to create these tours, Happy Together Tour in 1984, 1985. And I would go to the artists and I would guarantee them and you know, a money for to do X amount of shows from Memorial Day to Labor Day, and um, and that's what I did. And I did the same thing in '84. I did and my first tour was a Happy to Go tour. Then I did Happy to Go tour in 1985. In 1986, I guaranteed the Monkees, and unbeknownst to me, the Monkees hit it big when MTV decided to air the TV show and air it 24 hours a day. Oh, that reunion! So, that reunion yeah, tour was yeah. magic. I remember that. Magic, yeah. But, but so the magic thing was what I learned in the Catskills. It was basically packaging, no different than they're doing Coachella today. It's no different what they do, you know, all these festivals. And uh, you had to sell tickets and you were responsible to, to, to book the act and, and fulfill your contracts with them. Fantastic. And one of your early clients was Herschel Bernardi, I think? That was my first client and, the, and my, my real big star. And, and he yelled at me. He said, get out of the Catskills. He would yell at me and said, leave the Catskills. He says, you can do bigger. You can do better. And I remember uh, coming out to California, meeting his lawyer and I started representing Herschel and booking him all around the country at Jewish organizations. And, and later he introduced me to the American, um, you know, theater business and voiceovers and showed me a whole other world out there. And as we were touching on when we were catching up uh, before we started recording, I first uh, met you, we'll put met in quotes, when I read your book in the 80s, putting it on the line. And that was the first time David Fishoff came into my life. And I remembered you from one of your many clients in sports, the great, great Giants quarterback, who I think still to this day had a, the right. best Super Bowl that any quarterback has ever had back in 86. And that was Phil Simms of uh, my beloved New York Giants. So Phil Simms in his rookie season um, was here in New York. And I called him to do an appearance at a um, telethon with Drew Pearson up in upstate New York. And I remember he did the appearance and uh, I think Drew couldn't do it. I think that's what happened. The last minute I contacted Phil Sims and about two, a week later, he called me up. He said, can we have lunch? And uh, we had lunch together. And uh, I think something happened with his first agent. And uh, I said, I'd love to represent you. And, and we formed a bond and, um, and I had the honor, really an honor to work with him his entire a career and um, as an athlete, and then in the beginning of his sport, his broadcasting career, and he's such an amazing person. I mean, I, I think you know what I have to say about Phil Sims is basically he really taught me, along with Lou Pinella, how to win 
Um, you know, that's all he wanted to do was win, win, win. And I saw him work hard in that weight room and I saw, and it was just, it was, it was really incredible. He became a, a great role model to me. And I think I, I think I helped him also. And you work with Mark Bravaro and Vince Ferragamo and Hacksaw Reynolds. You worked with a tremendous roster. Yeah, well, I started with them and Lou, and, and Lou recommended me to Vince Ferragamo, who, you know, recommended me to Hacksaw Reynolds and Freddie Dreyer. You know, back then, many of these players didn't have agents. And if they did, the agents were inexperienced. So they were their friends. So, you know, I got to meet them. And but and then Phil basically recommended me to the whole offensive line and Phil McConkey and Jim Bird and and you know, you talk about Mark Bravaro. I mean, that was really one of the guys that I really wanted to represent because I just love how he rep. You know, how, what what he was as a person, what he was as an athlete. Um, and you know, before COVID, I, I went to I was up in Boston, and we got together, had lunch, and uh, it was just great. It was great. And you must have had some memorable negotiations with some very memorable team owners. And uh, I'd love to ask about. Uh, your work with Lou Pinella and dealings that you had with a legend, the lion, George Steinbrenner. Well, yeah, uh, you know, Steinbrenner, you know, basically in, in those days, you know, Lou would walk into the office and say, you know, George, I want 250,000. George would say, no, I give you 150. And then they'd shake hands at 200 and then he walked away. You know, that, that's how the negotiations were. And George was the, and George was very intimidating until the point where I said to Lou, you know, you're a free agent. You know, you can go up against uh, George Steinbrenner. And I basically convinced him to let me go in there and negotiate a contract. And, and I'll never forget, I, I called, he was a free agent. And I called around all the teams in the Red Sox. And, and every general manager picked up the phone and said, we love Lou Pinnell. We'd do anything to have Lou Pinnell on the team. And I'll never forget, I forgot what, it was Buzzy Bavese the Angels. Or someone said to me, David, there's no way George is going to allow Lou Pinnell to leave the Yankees. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, at the owner's meeting, he got up there and said, whoever bids for Ron Guidry or any of my players, I'm going to double the bid. So don't, don't bid for them. And so uh, I said, Lou, let me go in. Let me negotiate with George. I promise you, I, I'll do a great job for you. And uh, you remember him calling me up. I was in Los Angeles and I was with the association at the time and Gary Puckett. And, and he said to me, well, we can go in to meet George. And um, you can go in. So I said, let me go in. And I went in and I drove to Florida. I flew to Florida overnight from LA. I went into my meeting with George and he turned to me and says, well, what are, you, what are you doing here? And, you know, how can I help you? You know, so I said, well, I want to talk to you about Lou being a, a free agent. And he said, well, let Lou try to be a free agent. And I said, George, you won't let him be a free agent. You got up at the owner's meeting and I was able to nail him. And then I walked away with a three-year amazing deal for Lou. And um, I was so excited to really show Lou how, how much value he was back then and, and also go up against George. And George was upset at me. You know, he got upset because I was upset that he put a weight clause in. He wanted Lou to stay at a certain weight. And then, uh, but we had a lot of fun. And, but one thing I got to tell you about George Steinbrenner, all he wanted to do was win. He wanted to win no matter what the price was. He wanted to win as opposed to negotiating for, with George Young or any of the football owners, they had no inspiration to win. They, they all made the same amount of money. So there was no motivation for the Giants to win. There was no motivation for any team to win because the way the NFL is set up. So, you know, it was harder to go shit against George Young and try to convince them to pay your players more. And, you know, today it's much easier because there's so much free agency and bidding. You can sit back. Right. Oh, remarkable. And, and at the same time, you're representing all these iconic athletes, baseball, football. You're also in the music business and you and you and you referenced it. But take us back to the idea. And I guess you really gave us the answer to some degree that it was rooted in what you learned at the Catskills. But you were able to package up acts who had sort of fallen on the scrap heap, who had who had great hits. Uh, back in the 60s, actually, I know one of the acts you had was the Turtles. And my cousin, you might know, Don Rubin. Yes. So yes. Don is... Happy Together song. Yeah. And Don was with Charlie Koppelman and Marty Bandier in the 60s as a partner. And uh, uh, was my mother's first cousin. And uh, so I knew some of those acts from him. But you work with Gary Lewis and the Grassroots and the Buckinghams and the Association who you mentioned. Where did that idea come 
from to take all these great acts, all of whom had incredible hits, and put them back on the road? So the one thing I did miss was I should have got involved in more of the music publishing because that's really what the business was, but I didn't understand that. But what I did do was I got a call one day because I was all over the newspapers representing Vince Ferragamo. He's playing Canada. He, we would negotiate with Canada. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those agents who was going to, you know, basically kiss the, the general manager's, uh, you know, kiss his, uh, his rear end because I wanted to get my players signed. I had a great music business. So um, I was able to have negotiating leverage. But what happened was um, I got a phone call from somebody in LA and said, Do you want, am I interested in representing the association? And I said, the association of what? I had never heard of the association. Then they started hearing the songs, Cherish and Windy. And I remembered all those songs from the dentist's office. Every time I think that I'm the only one who's lonely, someone calls on me. Every now and then I spend the time I find a bruise and bruise that falls in me. And then along comes Betty. Does she want to give me a gift? Will you my face? She can give me a bit of memory. But I was sharing office space at the time with Shep Gordon, the great manager for Alice Cooper and Petty Pendergrass. And in front of me was Gary, G Gary, um, oh, I'm gonna think of his name. I always, uh, he managed, uh, in front of my office, we were sharing office space. He had, um, he had the Blondie, he had the Ramones, and Meatloaf's manager was up there, and all these different, Madonna's manager was there. So we were all sharing this office space in 1775 Broadway, and everybody had the gold records on the wall. And I, want, is, I wanted to have those gold records. I wanted to, I liked the entertainment business because you could be creative. You know, I was in the business of, you know, like the movie is, show me the money, get the best contract. And after a while, it gets boring. You know, I wanted to be involved in something more creative. So I, I went to, I heard from the association. I went to California, I went to meet them. And they uh, started playing me their new songs. And I said, play me the old songs. And I, they sounded so great. So that's when I, you know, took them on. I said, I'll take a chance. And um, I went to every agent at William Morris at the time. And I said, can you book my artist? Can you book my artist? And they all look at me like, you're nuts, Bishop. You have 35 athletes. What do you want to associate? We can't book them for 2,500 a night. What do you want to do this for? I said, I want to try something creative. I booked a million dates with William Morris on the association that first year, 1983. All of a sudden, the phone started ringing. The turtles called me, the grassroots called me, Gary Puckett. They couldn't believe the association was working so much. And that's when I decided to package them in a, in a tour called Happy Together. And um, I did 15 shows and I sold them to all the promoters, you know, like the Jules Belkin of Cleveland and uh, Arnie Granite in Chicago. You know, each one of those promoters before Live Nations, that was their territories. And the movie, The Big Chill came out. And when the movie, The Big Chill came out, all of a sudden, the interest of the oldies music came back and the show started filling up 3,000 seat theaters. And that's when we landed up doing 125 shows in 1984, happy to get a tour. And the Turtles was so amazing that I decided to just to add, you know, the birds to it and uh, uh, Mark Clark's, uh, what's it, Clark's birds, My, Mark Clark's birds or Mike Clark, I forgot his name, but um and we added you know another package and the goal was basically to give people hit songs because i have a philosophy if you go to a show you want to hear hit songs you want your mind totally to be into that show and when these artists start playing songs that that are obscure from this album and that album or they're playing the new album you get bored so i only let the artists do hit songs and the show became a hit and still going today and, you know happy together still touring today did that in 84 to 85 and then um, then came the monkeys. Fantastic. So before we go on, you touched on it, but today, 2021, the music business is dominated globally by Live Nation and AEG. Yes. Back then, it was a local business. Local promoter. Let's yeah. talk about how it used to be. And there were some incredibly charismatic characters. Some are still around. I mean, Delsner is still around and there's a couple of them. But there were some incredible characters. Well, first of all, yes, there were incredible characters that that you know would promote the Beatles. They were they had their territories. Uh, many of them, some of them, were drug dealers. 
and they started off in the drugs business, you know, and or their associates were, they had all this cash and how were they going to bury the cash? So they became concept promoters. Um, some were that, most, you, know, others, you know, many of them were legitimate. They just wanted to take that chance, but they had their territories and they were able to secure the acts um, and they were able to secure the theaters and they would book the artists in these theaters. And, uh, but then what happened was many of them ran into problems because um, they would book an artist in a local arena, a local theater. And when the show was over, um, if they didn't sell out every ticket, everyone got paid. They, the artists got paid, the venue got their share, they, the, ven the venue got to sell the beer, the popcorn, the soda, the ticket masters got paid, everyone got paid, security, advertising, radio station. And in the end, there was not much money left for them and because the agent was demanding more and more money. And I think what happened was that's really what changed the business. So they, these promoters had to you know, go in the printing business, you know, print bigger bills and uh, they had to scalp tickets. And, 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 but, but then in the end, it led them to building their own venues. Now all of a sudden they're in the real estate business because um, they, had to, they, they wanted to own the pier. They wanted to own the popcorn. They wanted to own you know, all the benefits that come with owning an arena. And um, so, you know, the business changed and uh, many of them found with big mortgages. And then along came this, this, uh, this gentleman um, and he bought them all up. And uh, yeah, Bob, Bob, Bob Silliman, whose life ended kind of poorly. His life ended poorly. Yeah. And I think he, he ended poorly. And then, uh, and then and his, his, his associate, Mitch, who was really a good guy, he, he brought Mitch, uh, Mitch Slater in to help him buy all these promoters. And for the promoters, they, they, they made a lot of money. You know, they, they got bought out. Um, and then that was the start of Live Nation and the, the, the change of the business. Now, that changed for me because here I was creating shows like Super 70s with Randy Bachman and BTO, Dirty Dancing, Ringo Starr and the All-Star Band, Happy Together Tours. And what I would do is I would, my, my business model was I would go to an agency and they would sell three, four shows to the promoter in Baltimore, three, four shows in Chicago, three, four shows in, 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 in Colorado. And to every one of these promoters and together you would get a hundred shows, you know, season. But when, when, when all of a sudden, when one promoter owned them, you were afraid to sell a show to one promoter because if they put tickets on sale and the tickets didn't sell, they would tell you, they'd tell you stick your tour in your pocket, you know, and, and you, meanwhile, you had the obligation to all these artists. And unlike when you worked for all these different promoters, some markets did better than others. So the whole business changed for people like me to become creative and, and it became all about, you know, the, the bigger, higher price acts, the tickets, and, um, and then the business is today what it is today. So when you're dealing with as much talent as you are, uh, and you went through an awful lot of acts on these package tours, a lot goes right, but once in a while, things go wrong. And, and you're the guy, you know, you're in the Harry Truman position, the buck stops with you. Do you, do you remember anything looking back on that period where something just went completely off the rails and, you know, your eyes rolled pretty far back into your well, head? Sure. I had a few different instances. So number one, well, in the film, you know, you see what happened the night I, I was doing the Ringo All-Star Band tour and the joke that Levon Helm and Joe Walsh pull on me, that's, you know, that, that was one of the things that went wrong. But what went wrong also was, you know, I partnered with Dick Clark and we did an a, a American Bandstand tour um, that, you know, by the time, you know, he went off the air and so it didn't have as much cachet. Uh, although I loved working with Dick, he's one of my idols, but I also did a, a, a tour of Mortal Kombat. You know, the movie just came out and uh, for some reason that didn't sell, you know, and, and some, some tours, you know, if, if we knew every show was going to be a winner, then, you know, but, you know, we don't know. And, and you, you got to book winners and you, and, you, and you produce some losers, too. I've had some losers. And but I think in the end, the goal is, is to um, have more winners than losers. But, you know, I love the, the line. I always think about uh, uh, promoters. We were going to the Polestar Convention in Vegas and I was sitting next to John Scher, the, the great promoter in New Jersey. And I said to Johnny, you're going to gamble and you know, play craps when you get to Vegas, if you play 21, what do you play? He says, I don't gamble. And I turned to myself and said, what do you mean you don't gamble? 
You gamble your whole life. Being a promoter, you're a gambler. I mean, who said it best? Was it Gene Simmons said it that, you know, a, a rock and roll promoter, take $100,000, put it on your front lawn and light a match. And uh, being a promoter is hard. And so I never really had to be a promoter as much because I would sell the shows to the different promoters in the town. So I was really producing it. And I knew that I had the show sold. So having the William Morris Agency or CAA or ICM, you know, once they sold the show, you were basically guaranteed to collect the money. They were your insurance policy. And then if you did better, you collected percentages. And then you, I was, I was really good at selling the sponsorships because of my representation of professional athletes. I was able to meet through Phil Sims, uh, Nabisco, and I was able to meet, um, you know, Nestle's and sell the sponsorships. Phil uh, Lupinella got me my first sponsorship of Happy Together when he went over to the owner of Members Only and said, uh, can you help my friend David? Or Phil Sims went to the president of Nestle's and he was at a personal appearance. And I said, can you ask him if you can sponsor the monkeys? And he said, yes. And, and then, you know, Mountain Dew. So I was the one getting all the sponsorship money back then. And I had the agent. So it was really a, a good business model. But when Live Nation came around, I was afraid. And uh, that's when I really started um, moving more and creating the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Great, which we are absolutely going to get to. I remember the members only. That was, a, who was that, Herb Wachtel? Herb, I, yes, I dealt with his partner, right, Herb Wachtel and his partner. And uh, yeah, I, I had called them about Lou Pinella. Lou was sponsoring, uh, Lou was um, endorsing them for many years. And uh, right, remember those members only, Jack? Oh, sure, they, that, that, they were big. They had their moment. They had their moment. And he told me what he did. I asked him, how did you get so big? And he said he would send uh, free jackets with the names of the, of the celebrities to their homes. And uh, there was a golf tournament a Frank Sinatra golf tournament. He sent a bunch of them out there and they posed in a picture. He said, that made my company. It was influencer marketing before anyone knew it, knew, before anyone knew what it was, right? Absolutely, yep. Great. So I want to talk about another name that you mentioned and he and his wife, Barbara, had both come out of rehab, had not worked in a long, long time. And you connect with Ringo Starr and create a property that still lives today, Ringo Starr and his all-star band. Got to pay your dues if you wanna sing the blues and you know it don't come easy. You don't have to shout or leap about. You can even play them easy. Open up your heart come together. Still touring, God bless them. You should tour to, you know, in the Jewish language, we say till 120 you should live, you should keep touring. He's really an inspiration to so many people and in so many ways. I mean, not only to all the artists who've been on the All Star Band tour, to see how he lives, to see his clean living. I cannot tell you that he saved so many artists' lives just for showing his interest in them. And, you know, and also I remember, I remember that in the early tours, and he probably does it today, even I'm not involved, but they, they have to take a medical test to get insured. You know, you insure the test. And a couple, uh, one or two artists' lives were saved because they, they never took a physical. And, uh, but just his way of living, you know, his clean way of living. Um, he's been an inspiration to so many artists and it was fun. I, you know, I, I had the idea. Um, Pepsi was so happy with what I did for Dirty Dancing. And um, the president of Pepsi came to me and says, you know, we want to do the 25th anniversary of the Pepsi generation. He says, what's your next idea? And I gave him a bunch of ideas. And one of them was Ringo and the All-Star Band and put a band together around Ringo. My brother's a drummer. He idolized Ringo. And uh, so I went to England. I wrote him a letter. And uh, he took me about six months. I got him to see him. And he turned to me and says, I was thinking the same idea. And together, we, we, we put this band together. And... I had an amazing run, 15 years. It was really hard because I always had to come up with new bands. The promoters wanted me to come up with new artists. And, but you know, but it was fun. So I got to see the world. I got to travel with a Beatle. And there's nothing like being around the Beatle. 
And the concept there that you came up with, which really planted the seeds for what you've been doing the last 20 plus years with Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, was to build an all-star cast, in that case around Ringo, and Ringo plays all of his hits, and depending on who's in the band, they play their hits. And it really is a winning formula. Winning formula, you get, first of all, you get to see all these songs um, it starts with Happy Together. Only play the hits. Uh, you know, again, it comes, you know, I, I know people won't like I say this, but I, I, I don't go to Bob Dylan concerts because you don't know what you're going to hear. You know, I don't go to artists that I want to hear the hit songs. You know, Paul Stanley said a great line at Rock Camp about two years ago. Someone asked them, they're going on this all hits tour. They're, they're going on their final tour. And he says, are you going to play that, that album, that, that third cut from, the, from, this, from that, this album, that album, that obscure cut? And he said, no, he said, that's why it's obscure. We're going to play hits. And I think when you're in the live music business, you're obligated to give these people all the hits. And I think that's what Rinko has given him. That's why he's around for 30 years now. And um, it's great. And, and, and when they did that joke with me after the fourth show at the Garden State Arts Center, and, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Eddie Mycone, our mutual friend. I was having lunch. I, I invited Eddie to come to that fourth show. I invited Eddie to come because Ringo said, oh, I'm thinking of, I'd love to play Radio City, you know, it'd be great. And, you know, and, and so I invited Eddie to come see the show. And Eddie and I are sitting down over dinner and Nils Lofgren walks by and he says, I'm out of here. I said, what do you mean you're out of here? I'm not, the, the Joe Walsh and Levon Helm are having a fight. Uh, this this, this all-star band's not going to work. I said, what do you mean? Everyone told me it was never going to work. You could do these concerts as a one-off, where you have all these stars, but you're never going to be able to tour all these A-list rock stars in one tour, and, and and hopefully they'll get along. And then Clarence Clemens, he walks by, and he says, "I'm out of here too." Now I had mortgaged my home on West 71st Street, so all I could think about was my home going down the river. And uh, um, they said to me, "You know, you better go down there and solve it." And you know, Joe Walsh and Levon Helm are having a fight. Well, I was looking for Ringo. Let him solve it. They're his friends, and. You know, he invited Joe on the tour. He brought Levon on the tour. I couldn't find him. I walk into the dressing room and Levon's got a knife in his hands with blood. Joe Walsh has a glass bottle with blood and they start fighting and they're pushing me and throwing blood on me. And then they both stuck their tongue out at me. And as you see in the film, Jim Keltner was filming it. And that's, you know, that's really how I thought of the idea of Rock and Roll Fantasy again, because I realized how much fun all these artists had on tour and no managers around them, no other bandmates, just Ringo and the and these all stars, and it was quite interesting. It really um, it was a great concept. Okay, so let's get into it now. Okay, the idea is now almost you're getting close to twenty five years. Right. Yes, it is twenty five years. Twenty five years. Yeah, going to my twenty sixth. You know, and uh, it's an incredible concept. Take us back to the beginning, the idea, and the very first edition of the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. So 25 years ago, I, you know, I, as I saw the, how much fun they were having on the Ringo tours, I said, boy, if I could give this to the fan an experience where they can hang out for four days with all these amazing musicians and they can learn from them. Because I was learning. I was learning so much. And um, so that's when I came up with the idea of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp after they pulled that prank on me. And I you know, decided to do my first one in Florida. Um, and I do my first one and I call everybody I know. I call, um, I, I call Nils Lofgren because Nils and I were playing basketball every day on the tour. And Nils says, oh, I like the idea. And he's a sports fan, so he got it. Um, and then I call Mike Love of the Beach Boys. I call Mark Farner Grand Funk because he had done the tours for me. And um, so I, I decided to call these as many rockers as I knew. And I'm going to do this rock and roll fantasy camp. I remember calling Mike Love of the Beach Boys. And we put this uh, camp together. I announced it at the Hard Rock Hotel. The response was incredible. I mean, all the media showed up. Jay Leno went on the air and said, I got this rock and roll fantasy camp. Um, he said, for $5,000, you can jam with a bunch of B rock and roll stars. He says, for $5,500, you can check yourself in the Betty Ford Clinic and jam with a bunch of A rock and roll stars. And everybody started talking about rock and roll fantasy camp. And so I go and I do this and we invite all this media people to come and it was a disaster. I think I had 10 paid, but I had 50 media. And after the second day, I'm walking into the lobby of the hotel in Florida 
And uh, all of a sudden, um, the media guys called me into the lobby and they say, uh, fish off, I want to talk to you. And I'm looking at all these people. And um, they said to me, you know, we were going to skewer you on this idea. They said, but we're having so much fun and we're learning so much from these artists. And it was really, it was incredible. Liberty DeVito, Mark Rivera, they, they were just giving off all their information, different than we do it now, but they were sharing all this information and people were taking it in, the media was taking it in. They gave me great reviews, but I decided, you know what? It was fun, it was, it was, but I'm never gonna do this again. And then I had five, ring, five years of Ringo touring. And uh, that's when I decided after five years, I'm gonna try it one more time. And all these years later, going strong. Tell us about the experience. I'm a fan. I want to go to rock and roll fantasy camp. What happens? Okay. So naturally you, you, you see it advertised, you see Roger Daltrey, or you see headlining or you from Judith Priest and you sign up for rock, rock and roll fantasy camp. Many women, they usually buy it for their husbands um, the, the first time, or someone buys it a gift for their dad or a husband buys it for his wife. Anyone who loves music, they sign up and they get a, a letter and basically tells them, you know, what songs they should start working on, all about the camp, all the details. And now in the upcoming camps that we're going to do in October, November, we're going to actually be able to have Zoom masterclasses where you're going to be able to prepare yourselves and how to play the songs and, and, and all about camp. Because the biggest problem that we've had over the years is the fear factor. You know, people are scared. It's not, you're not going to go on a cruise and getting drunk. You're really coming to play with these amazing artists. Each band is mentored by a touring rock star like Vinnie Apice, uh, who was from Dio and Black Sabbath, or Rudy Sarzo, Lita Ford. They actually take on a band for four days. And these are people you've never met before. You come together in a band and um, you're going to play live with a Joe Perry. You're going to play live with a Dave Mustaine. They're going to come into your rehearsal studios during these four days and you're going to prepare a song to jam with them. You're going to attend master classes. You're going to hear the most, the best information you've ever heard from these people. You're going to go into jam rooms and play cream music. You're going to play blues. You're going to play all different kinds of our rock stars. They just, once they come in the door, their whole goal is to give you the experience of a lifetime. And, um, and then the final night, you're going to play at the Whiskey at Go-Go with, with Ian Pace or Steve Morris or Zach Wilde or Judith Priest. And, 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 and it's really an incredible experience. It starts at 10 in the morning, goes to 10 at night. And, and, and I guarantee people who come that they will go through a life-changing experience. It really will change your life because Joe Perry said it best, one camp. He says to somebody, he says, what do you do for a living? And the guy says, you know, I'm a lawyer. And on weekends, I play with my band and I'm a guitar player. And Joe Perry turns and says, no, no, you're a guitarist first. You do that legal bullshit to, to, uh, to pay for your guitars. And basically a musician is a musician first. A vocalist is a vocalist first. Now you have an opportunity if you're a beginner and you just picked up a guitar, we'll put you in a band with just, with new people, with, with an instructor. And the rock stars, they're quite amazing. Why? Because yes, you'll have an Alan White who'll take a band for four days and that's hard music to play. And he says, I want a great band. But then you'll get a guy like Spike Edney, who's a musical director of Queen, and he's a keyboard player. And he'll say, David, give me any band. I'll take the worst band and I'll make them better. And it's no different than a coach, a football coach. You know, Belichick, he gets the same draft picks as everybody. But he, every year he turns out a great team because he knows how to coach it. Well, the same thing are these, these rock stars. I tell them, you got to coach these, these bands. And it's amazing what they do. And they, really, people go through life-changing experiences. And... 50% of our campers return. The other 50% eventually come back. And it really is, it's a great experience. And, and that's really what I get out of it. It's really for me, as you saw in the film, it's really changing people's lives through the power of music. And I don't have to go on the road and I get to really make a difference in people's lives. And I love that. And the film, which is called Rock Camp, I watched it. It's on all the big platforms. I watched it on Amazon. Is not only is it entertaining, but you really are doing an incredible job helping people and a lot of the young musicians, young kids with autism, and you are giving experiences. This is, this is not only for wealthy Wall Streeters. You, you, are, you are really hitting the every man and every woman. At one time, we were getting $8,500. I was booking, I, I was, I, I, 
I was overpaying people. I'll be honest with you. And the, the folks at the McKinsey and Company, they came in and really helped me fix my business about five, six years ago. And one of them was the camper. I just see Scott in the film. And he basically showed me how to you know, lower the price, make it reasonable for people, and really give them an experience that, um, that people will, will take away for the lifetime. And what I'm hoping when they see the film is that they will not only, if you play an instrument, it's great, but I'm hoping people will be inspired. If you have an idea, how many people walk around with, I got this million dollar idea. I want to do this app. I want to do this book. I want to do this business. And they're afraid to do it at any age. I'm too old to do something. These people are able to change your lives through music. You can change them, your lives through, you know, just forgetting the fear factor. Go and do it. Artists love to give back. They realize their success is based on the fan. And that's how I came up with the idea of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Very easy to forget where you came from. Once Roger started doing it, it opened up the door. Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp became part of pop culture. Just like that. Welcome to Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Woo! Okay, this person could play, this person could kind of play. You would have a 15-year-old kid playing drums and a dentist on guitar. If this band were a real band, it would be the weirdest band ever, but cool. A lot of really good players come through. One guitar player was shredding like a mother, and I'm thinking, what are you? He goes, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I'm going, wow. I want every rock star to do what inspires them. I had to experience it. If Bob Dylan and Gene Simmons and Jimi Hendrix auditioned for The Voice, do you think we'd make it? Well, it's about time. It's about, you think we'd make it? Nice to play but get with him. It's great, huh? Paul Stanley, same. We reminded him of Buddy Miles. Hey, babe, I'm in the middle of a vocal thing. Ready? I'll call you back, OK? <laughs> Looking forward to another good bashing of rock camp. I've reconnected with my joy of playing. Singing for the first time on stage. It's a very special thing. That moment, and for me and for him, it's real. I can't think of a more fun thing to do. I mean, it's better than stamp collecting. Just fantastic. And still going strong if people are interested. Please, so we're gonna open up again in October, November. We're gonna open up in Florida. And, um, and then we have camps coming up you know, next year with uh, the Scorpions are doing a camp and Dave Mustaine was doing a camp and you know, hopefully Joe Perry will come back and do camps. And yeah, when, when, when the music business opens, you know, it's been hard. It's been really hard, but we transitioned into, you know, doing Zoom classes with the artists. Alice Cooper did them, uh, Def Leppard, Roger Daltrey. They all got on Zoom to talk to the campers and, and people who want to just call in and talk advice and then majority of them gave their money to charity to their crews who needed it and you know so we did over 160 master classes uh this past year and i uh, got brit lightning for the band uh, vixen she came on she hosted them all and we we're able to really give people two hours a night of amazing information fantastic so we touched on it before but i i we have to go back and talk a little bit about the monkeys they captured the imagination of so many people. And I remember as a young boy watching the, the television program, which is what brought them to life. They were a created band, weren't they? Sort of like One Direction and, and it, was, it was all created. Go back to that and the reunion tour. Okay, so we have, to, I'm like you, I grew up watching the monkeys and that was really the only show my parents let me watch. Here we come, walk down the street. And they were a band that answered an ad from Bob Rapelson and, and Bert Schneider, two uh, TV producers who put an ad in Variety. They were looking for a band four guys and they they were trying to create the american beatles and they the show was only on for two seasons but they kept playing that show over and over they got uh, the best songwriters um you know the famous um 
who is it? The, 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 his son is still now a great uh, a TV producer. Um, he produced the, the music and he had the TV show at night Midnight. Who was the, the gentleman? Don, the, Don, Don, Don Kirshner. Kirshner. Don yeah, and his son, out. Ricky. Ricky. Ricky's doing so well. But Don, um, you know, went out and found the best songwriters, whether it was, um, you know, I'm a Believer from um, Neil Diamond. And they, he got the best songwriters, Voice and Heart. And they did these amazing TV shows. And they recorded, they, they, they sold more records than the Beatles one couple of years. I and mean, they were just incredible. Now, what I love that you're asking about them is I must have done 100 interviews now since the film is out. It's not one interview that doesn't want to talk. Let's talk monkeys. Let's talk monkeys. The monkeys just make everyone smile. They make everyone happy. The songs are great. They're such a great mood change. And, and I thought that uh, they were my favorite band. So I had the opportunity to meet Peter Tork, came to one of my shows, my Happy Together tour. And I went to Peter and he was sent side of stage at the, at the pier, um, Ron Delson's pier in Manhattan. And I turned to him and I said, can we do the monkeys? And he basically said, well, I'll take it and meet Davey. I'll take, take it and meet Mickey. It was 1985. And I flew over to England. I got to meet them, made deals with them, but they didn't own the name, the monkeys. The monkeys are owned by Columbia Pictures. Today it's owned by Rhino Records. So I had to buy the name from Columbia, bought the name from Columbia and I, I, I licensed it for a year. And, uh, and I put the monkeys out, toured them up in the Catskills. I started the tour up in the Concord Hotel. Um, I added horn players to, the, to the, the band. They weren't talking to each other. And uh, they met the first time at rehearsal. And I put a great band together. And from, from the grassroots, I, put, I took the best musicians I had from working for the years. And here we went. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I'm in 1775 Broadway. I'm on the seventh floor. On the eighth and ninth floor, there's this new fledging network called MTV. And I get a phone call from a, a billboard reporter saying, hey, do you hear that the monkeys are doing, um, that MTV is doing 24 hours of the monkeys? And I said, well, I'm doing the tour. So I run upstairs to see Bob Pittman, who was running the network at the time. And I said, Mr. Pittman, I am David Fishoff. We see each other in the elevator. Oh yeah, you're the sports agent. Now, you know, they didn't like me back then. There's the Giants in 84 and 85. You know, wasn't 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 uh, you know? We'd walk on the streets, and people would say, you know, they 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 look at me like I'd walk at the synagogue wherever I was. Oh, the Giants lost, Giants lost, you know. And I remember walking on the streets with Phil Sims. Be careful where you're walking. I mean, New York fans are nasty. And so I said to Mr. Pittman, "I'm doing the monkeys," and he said, "Well, sit down, kid, and let's talk." He said, "I'll make a deal with you. You promote my new fledging network, MTV, in all your newspaper ads, and I'll promote your." MTV. I'll, I'll promote the monkeys on MTV. And it was amazing. You know what happened? I went on sale and I sold 30,000 tickets in Chicago. I sold out Foxborough Stadium, you know, Garden State Arts Center, Jones Beach. I mean, everywhere just sold out. All these little girls came running home and the mother said, where were you all night? Mommy, I was in line buying monkey tickets. And mothers would say, but I want to go. And so the first 20 rows were all the little girls screaming and then the mothers screaming. And today I have hearing loss from those, those concerts. Oh my gosh, <laughs> what, a, what a great story. Yeah. So you've, you're truly a guy who's done it all. You're still a relatively young man. When you lay awake at night, I know that brain of yours doesn't stop. What, what are you cooking up? Or what would you like to do, David, that you haven't gotten to yet? Well, that's an amazing question. But I do wake up every night and I, in the middle of the night, no question, in the morning. And what I love about Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp is I come up with new bands, new ideas. I had Jerry Cantrell from Allison Chains. I had Stone Temple Pilots. You know, I'm working on younger bands. I'm working on different kinds of camps. Now I'm going to go into women's only camps. I want to offer that. I want to go into kids camps. I want to go into franchising. I love this part of my life now where I'm able to give people an experience. I get to open my emails every day, five, six emails, David, I'm doing this. I recorded this record. I've, my life has changed. My business has changed. My marriage is happier because I found happiness through your rock and roll fantasy camp. I'm learning to run my business better. You know, I had one of the owners of Oracle, Ed Oates, come to my camp. And after going through my camp, he said, I learned to listen. And, and because these musicians, yeah, you walk in, and you tell this rock star, hey, I want to do this song. 
and the rock star turns to him and says, excuse me, sir, but I have to teach song to five other people. And, you know, so those type A personalities like to take over. And they're, the rockers, you know, I learned from Bill Parcells. He gave me a great line. He said to me, you don't let the inmates run the asylum. And I tell that to all my counselors, you go in there, coach this team, make them the best man. And they walk away, they learn something. And I love that. And, you know, I'm, there's, there's so many, we could have done a hundred stories in that film because everyone's got a story. One of my favorites that didn't make it was a woman who came to camp and she had breast cancer. And I invited her as a, my guest from Susan Coleman Foundation. She leaves camp. She writes a book called Rocking the Pink. She came to a meatloaf camp. It changed her life. Then I said to her, you know, when you left camp and, you know, you had this four-day experience, now all of a sudden you have to go home to go to your regular job as a lawyer. And she said, you know what, David, I quit. I quit being a lawyer. And I said, I'm going to be authentic like these rock stars. I'm going to learn. I'm going to be like they are. And I'm going to go out and write books. And she's written 14 books that are bestsellers on Amazon, fiction books. So here you are, you're able to change folks' lives and give them happiness. And so I want to continue to do this. I think the business has been great to me and I want to continue to give back. And, and I'm really enjoying that. I'm really, really enjoying that. And, and being a father, I'm a father to five. I'm a grandfather to seven and I'm another on the way. I have a daughter. I'm so, that's where I feel I'm wealthy, you know, having the kids. My daughter, Alana, is a top nutritionist for a company called Beachbody. She's got a million and five TikTokers. Her name is Nutrition Babe. And she's, I see she, she, she lost 120 pounds herself. She helped me lose weight. So my son-in-law is a rabbi. So, you know, my dad was a rabbi. My brother was a rabbi in Boca Raton. I saw people, I saw my family change people's lives through just love and, you know, guiding them. And it really is, a, it's, it's fun. I really enjoy that. Fantastic. Well, you look terrific. And let's get you on stage at Advertising Week. We're coming back live in the fall and you are the consummate storyteller and we'd love to have you. And thanks so much for doing this. It was an absolute joy. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for enjoying the film. <laughs>